Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. The show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine with your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Saturday, October 29th, 2022. It's been 3,167 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 248 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, both belligerents confirmed that Rasputitsa, a.k.a. mud season, is slowing down combat operations, and we maintain that winter combat conditions will start in the next four weeks. Second, we maintain that Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon is a disinformation campaign meant to sow fear and division and an attempt to discredit the Ukrainian government. The Kremlin already appears to be walking back the accusation, and has shifted claims in the UN to repeat false accusations of biolabs. Third, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Fourth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat-destroyed and is incapable of mounting offensive operations larger than a company. Fifth, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat and that an invasion of western Ukraine is possible in the next 40 to 70 days. Sixth, despite the GUR statement from Ukraine, we maintain our assessment that Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks. However, our confidence is reduced. Seventh, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, and we anticipate a significant reprisal within the next week due to the probable Ukrainian attack on the Black Sea Fleet. Eighth, Ukrainian officials validated our assessment that the mobilization of up to 300,000 troops has not improved Russian combat strength and exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems within the Russian Federation. And finally, we assess that the use of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely— but add that the Kremlin could renew threats due to the attack on the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol, likely carried out by Ukraine. 
Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. Neither belligerent reported fighting in Kherson, with Russian sources stating there was a, quote, lull today, with action limited to airstrikes, artillery, and rocket attacks. Although weather conditions have improved in the area, Rasputitsa, the Ukrainian word for mud season, will likely persist until winter weather arrives. Satellite images showed that Russian forces had abandoned their stronghold at Chornobaevka, just northwest of Kherson. Pictures showed the numerous tank scrapes and redoubts were empty. Due to the introduction of HIMARS and its big brothers, the M270 and Mars-2 GMLRS, Russian units have had to take bigger measures to hide their equipment. Insurgents in Kherson set the parking garage for the city police department on fire, destroying multiple vehicles. Oddly enough, Russian officials had problems extinguishing the blaze because the occupiers looted most of the firefighting equipment last week. Rockets fired by HIMARS struck Novokakhovka in the vicinity of the hydroelectric plant, likely targeting Russian equipment crossing the temporary bridge. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Ukrainian Air Force executed eight airstrikes and ground forces completed 160 fire missions. The Ukrainian Air Force conducted suppress and destroy enemy air defense activity in the Mykolaiv, Pervomaiske, and Bereslav rayons. Ammunition depots in the Bereslav and Mykolaiv regions were destroyed by artillery. Quick sidebar for some vocab. A rayon is similar to a county or a parish and represents a fairly large area. Russian troops occupy small areas of the Mykolaiv and Pervomaiske rayons within the Mykolaiv oblast. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Russian troops in Bereslav are abandoning their military uniforms and wearing civilian clothes. The act is not a violation of the Geneva Convention, but it is looked down upon as a breach of military customs and is considered cowardice. Now, if Russian troops wearing civilian clothes were to attack Ukrainian forces and intended to hide their belligerent role, that would be a war crime. Russian forces continue troop rotations, with Mobix arriving to replace retreating and more experienced forces. The GSAFU reported that the main hospital in Kherson was looted, and all vital equipment was moved to the east bank of the Dnipro. Civilians living in the towns surrounding Kherson were told they had 48 hours to evacuate and would be relocated to Russian-occupied Crimea. Russian forces continued to conduct filtration of civilians, stealing belongings and making arrests. On the same day the forced evacuations were announced, Russian state news agency TASS reported the civilian evacuations of Kherson were complete. Russian forces once again shelled the beaches and port areas of Ochakiv from the Kinburn Spit. There were no reports of injuries or significant damage. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged and remains stable. Reactor 5 provides internal steam power to the plant and remains in a hot shutdown state. There is still no update on the three kidnapped Energoatom employees, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not made any statements about the situation. 
Director General Rafael Grossi addressed the United Nations Security Council with the Ukrainian representative attending the meeting. He told the members that the situation at ZNPP is, quote, extremely fragile and dangerous, end quote, suggesting that shifting operational decisions to Moscow contributes to the plant's instability. Grossi added that progress was being made on demilitarizing the plant and establishing a security zone, saying, quote, We are not far from an agreement, and it is in no one's interest to have a major nuclear accident, end quote. The director general specifically thanked the United States and United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken for his role and support in negotiating the creation of a demilitarized zone around ZNPP, It was the first time the United States was acknowledged for being involved in negotiations between Russia and the United States on behalf of and with Ukraine. The settlements of Nikopol and Markhanets were needlessly shelled, quote, all night, according to Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor. The attack on Nikopol damaged an eight-story apartment building, a furniture factory, a hotel, offices and shops, and resulted in one hospitalization. In Marchanets, a service station caught on fire, with the garage burned to the ground. Merivka was reportedly shelled, but given its location, it was probably struck by an S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for a ground attack or a kamikaze drone. No injuries were reported, and Russian sources claimed that there were attempted attacks on Pavlograd, north of the village. Quick assessment here. It is entirely possible that a missile or drone was shot down in the Midivka area. Ukraine maintains much tighter operational security than the Russian occupiers. Sporadic artillery fire continued along the line of conflict from the Donetsk Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapole to Orekhiv to Mali Sherbaki. The GSAFU reported that a Russian ammunition depot in Novovodyane, six kilometers south of Enerhodar, was destroyed in an artillery strike. Intelligence reported that five trucks and three D-30 artillery pieces were also destroyed in the attack, though without visual evidence provided. Rockets fired by HIMARS hit Russian positions in Tokmak, Molochansk, and Kinsky Rozdore, wounding up to 110 Russian troops. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Poor weather over the last two days and mud have literally dampened the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, that's DNR, offensive to surround Avdiivka, which, according to DNR military leaders, went into full swing on October 25th. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed three tanks and seven, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, without any evidence, of course. Ukrainian forces conducted 165 fire missions on the occupied territories. The 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Kamyanka, moving to the H-20 highway and then being pushed back by Ukrainian forces. Ukrainian artillery positions hold fire control to the approach to Kamyanka and have repeatedly allowed DNR troops to enter the kill zone in the open areas east of the highway before firing. DNR troops continued their attempts to capture the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky and were battered by artillery fired from the same location. 
Russian proxy forces also attacked Ukrainian positions in the tree lines south of Vodyana without success. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported mutual fighting around Vremyvka and the ridges to the west. Losses were reported on both sides after heavy fighting, with no change in the line of conflict. It was the first fighting on the southern front since September 24th. Russian positions in Oktyabersk were shelled by Ukrainian forces, producing a large fire. Despite the recent rain, long lines formed in Russian-occupied Donetsk for drinking water. Water service in the city has been disrupted since March, and despite promises from the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, and Russian officials, repair work just never started. Massive lines have also formed along the Russian border, that is to say the pre-2014 Russian border, not the self-declared illegally annexed Russian border. Cars and trucks waited for hours at the Novoazovsk checkpoint east of Mariupol and Marinivka, where the wait is up to a day. The Novoazovsk checkpoint has become an alternative route out of Crimea for those not wanting to wait to take the Kerch Strait ferry. It was unclear what was causing the mass withdrawal from Russian-occupied Donetsk in Marinivka. We have some breaking news for you. At the time of recording, there were rumors that a significant offensive operation had started south of Vulidar. We could not verify the claims before we had to record, and are highly skeptical of the reports. In northeast Donetsk, you're not going to believe it. There were no reports of significant fighting on the Solidar-Bakhmut front for the first time since late July. There were pockets of fighting east of Solidar and Bakhmut, but not at the same level of intensity as earlier in the week and with less artillery support. There were positional battles south of Opitne, but no attempts to advance by either belligerent. The reason for the sharp decline in fighting today may have been due to a rocket attack by HIMARS on Mayorsk. The GSAFU reported that up to 300 Russian troops were killed and 60 more wounded in a strike near the beleaguered town. Even if the numbers were half of that, the losses would render a half-sized battalion tactical group, that's a BTG, combat destroyed. If the numbers are accurate, it is a devastating blow that would likely have a short-term impact on combat operations in the area. Both Ukrainian and Russian sources reported heavy fighting in Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk. We had coded the strategically important hamlet as back under Ukrainian control on September 12th, and then moved the line of conflict back to Russian forces in early October. Mercenaries with Wargonzo wrote, quote, Russian troops attacked Bilohorivka, end quote, which is about as strong a statement as you can get that Ukraine took back control. We did adjust the map, but left the area a no-man's land. By early June, the terrain already looked like a World War I moonscape and was littered with the bodies of both belligerents. Bilohorivka is the high ground between Bakhmut and Lusychansk, and would serve as the gateway for an advance toward Popazna in Luhansk. Russian forces could never gain full control of the area along the T-1302 highway, despite attempts starting in mid-May. The terrain east of Milohorivka is unforgiving. Although the area is a plateau, the terrain is naturally barren. In Luhansk, 
Both belligerents reported mutual fighting in Chervonopopivka, with both sides reporting significant losses. Russian sources reported that Ukraine had broken completely through its defensive lines near Kolomeyichicha and advanced east of the P-7 highway. Despite the claim being repeated on both pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian social media accounts, it wasn't true. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Ukrainian forces had established fire control on the P-7 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, between Kremina and Svatov. Later in the day, Haidai reported that the Svatov-Kremina highway was, quote, practically under the control of Ukrainian forces, but reminded people to wait for the official announcement from the GSAFU. Haidai indicated that more villages have been liberated just west of the P-7 highway and hoped that formal announcements could be made in the coming week. Operational Command East Commanding Officer General Serhii Cherevatsi confirmed Haidai's claims, stating the Russian G-lock between Svatov and Kremina was under Ukrainian fire control. After 11 days of fighting, it was quiet in Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Two squads of Russian DRG attempted to cross the Severskidonets River near Ohertseve, but were detected by the Ukrainian Border Guard Service. A Russian drone was shot down, and the squads came under fire and returned to their positions in Russia. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Bilopilia, Esmen and Snobnovhorodsk were shelled by mortars and artillery fired by Russian troops from across the border. Territorial Guard fought a minor skirmish on the border near Snobnovhorodsk with an exchange of small arms fire and rocket-propelled grenades. There were no reports of damage or casualties. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Explosions rocked Russian-occupied Sevastopol as air defenses of the Black Sea Fleet reportedly fired at drones. No damage was reported, and occupation officials reported that all the UAVs were intercepted. Ferry service across Sevastopol Bay was suspended after the attack. Social media videos showed residents' attitudes toward potential air raids had changed, with audible panic in some voices as explosions rang out over the city. The drone attacks continued into the morning, using both land and sea vehicles. Videos showed massive explosions in the Sevastopol harbor. There are unconfirmed reports that a minesweeper was heavily damaged, and the Black Sea Fleet flagship Admiral Makarov was damaged by shrapnel from a near miss. Pictures showed plumes of black smoke rising from the naval base at sunrise. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Vitaly Klitschko, former boxing champion and the mayor of Kyiv, hinted that the NASM's air defense system had deployed to protect Kyiv from drone, missile, and air attacks. Ukraine received the first two systems last week. Jointly developed by Norway and the United States, 
Nasm's is widely regarded as the best short- and medium-range air defense platform in the world. Klitschko worked to maintain reasonable expectations, saying the air would be, quote, better protected, and expressed hope there would be no more attacks by drones and missiles. Some assessment here? Although the system has outstanding capabilities and is in place to defend cities such as Washington, D.C., a single unit only has eight missiles, so a large-scale attack could still overwhelm Ukraine's capabilities. Klitschko also didn't explicitly state that NASM's air defense was deployed, so a different platform, such as Iris-T or Hawk, may be providing air defense. While the United States Department of Defense committed to providing Ukraine with Switchblade 600 drones capable of destroying light-armored vehicles, Yuri Inat, spokesperson for the Air Force of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, reported the kamikaze drones have not yet been delivered. The smaller Switchblade 300 is man-portable, but was designed to be used by special operation forces and insurgents for targeted attacks on small groups of people or attacking automobiles. The 300 has not performed well in Ukraine, with a high failure rate. The 25-kilogram Switchblade 600 is theoretically man-portable, has a longer range and loitering time, packs a much larger warhead, and can strike larger targets. Capabilities would be close to the Russian Zala Lancet or the Iranian Shahed-131. The Russian Federation continues to draw down Belarusian military resources while deploying Russian equipment into the Moscow-aligned Baltic state. Since February, the Russian Ministry of Defense has taken more than 65,000 tons of ammunition from Belarus's reserves. That's the equivalent of almost 2,000 full railroad cars. Svetlana Babayeva, the Simferopol regional head of the Russian state media news agency Russia Today, was killed in a shooting range accident in Russian-occupied Crimea. Babayeva was reportedly target shooting at the range when she was killed. It was unclear if there was a self-inflicted gunshot, if another shooter accidentally shot her, or if there was a catastrophic weapons failure. Russian propagandist and YouTuber Igor Nevyansky, who went by the call sign Dark Marshal, was killed in Ukraine. Four Russian reporters have been killed and one wounded in the last two weeks. As we move on to this next story, I'd like to remind you that we don't make the news, we only report it. And this is a new level of absurd, even for the Kremlin. Vasily Nebenzia, the permanent representative of Russia to the UN, accused Ukraine of building drones that can spread, quote, combat mosquitoes infected with dangerous viruses, end quote. Nebenzia repeated claims that Ukraine had weaponized birds in biolabs infected with influenza and Newcastle disease. As amusing as these claims are, the real consequences among people who deeply believe these falsehoods are inciting unprecedented political violence in some Western nations. They also impact nations' abilities to adequately respond to outbreaks of diseases like, I don't know, Zika or bird flu. Norwegian officials identified the Russian spy they arrested, who was posing as a Brazilian, as 43- or 44-year-old Mikhail Mikushin. Mikushin's operational security was so bad, he left an obvious and easily traced trail across multiple social media channels, 
Bellingcat identified him as a colonel in the GRU due to his listed Moscow address at the GRU Academy, where he lived in a government-provided apartment. Speaking of government-provided, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu reported that the mobilization of 300,000 conscripts had been completed, with 82,000 Mobiks already in Ukraine. The Kremlin military leader said that 218,000 are still undergoing military training, and another 13,000 willingly volunteered to fight in Ukraine. Despite the claim, a video showed Mobiks complaining they received their summons in the evening and were immediately ordered to leave for training. The person recording, who was attempting to conceal that he was making a video, said, quote, No goodbyes, no getting together, nothing, no lifting, nothing. End quote. The Russian MOD released more staged videos showing weapons training for Mobiks. A former military trainer told us that there are clear issues with a lack of qualified instructors. Mobiks, being taught how to shoot through windows, doorways, and slats, were instructed to extend the barrel out of the opening and to rest their weapon on the sill for stability. A skilled instructor would teach the opposite, to stand back from the opening when firing to conceal your location and be far enough back to hide the muzzle flash. In Ardatov, Russia, an official addressing recent Mobics attempted to dispel rumors that conscripts were sacrificed needlessly in Ukraine. After stating, quote, You are not cannon fodder, end quote, he was met with angry shouting from furious conscripts. One declared, quote, You bastard, this guy's an invalid, and me, I have an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. End quote. Another yelled, quote, It's all empty words. End quote. Later, conscripts showed that the rain gear they were given was torn and falling apart from the Soviet era. They also complained that their winter hats were produced in 1982. A quick editor's note here, the complaints about the winter hats appeared misguided, with the equipment in good condition. We understand that this era's winter gear is likely better than newer materials. Mobix in Khantimansi Autonomous Akrog in Siberia made a video appealing for help because they have been forced to buy their own diesel fuel to heat their tents, which, by the way, have no chimney exits for the provided heaters. They reported that many were sick due to the poor conditions and asked sarcastically if they were expected to buy their own petrol station. After promises that Mobix would receive four to eight weeks of training before deployment to the front, Russian President Vladimir Putin once again broke the social contract with his people, stating that training is now 10 to 25 days long. In contrast, Ukrainian forces are receiving a minimum of five weeks of training following NATO standards. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, confirmed that Mobix were filling defensive holes along the front lines, but they had done nothing to increase the combat power of the Russian army in Ukraine. Zaluzhny cited poor training and tactics and low morale as negating the benefits of numerical superiority in both troops and weapons. A very graphic video was shared on social media showing the aftermath of the HIMAR strike on the school-turned-barracks full of Chechens. Russian officials reported that 23 were killed and 58 wounded in the strike, a surprising admission of losses. 
The video is not suitable for work or for children and may be disturbing for some. If you want to view it, you can click the link in our full situation report on Patreon. A Telegram account is not required. Video emerged in eastern Ukraine of Mobiks taken prisoner by Ukrainian forces. The dozen gaunt, wet, ill-equipped, and mud-covered prisoners were from the Bilgorod area. A video emerged from liberated Nevsky in Luhansk of captured Russian military equipment, weapons, and a pair of Mobiks. Private military company or PMC Wagner Group shared a video of a Russian Su-34 aircraft being used to drop Fab 250 so-called dumb bombs on a Ukrainian target during a risky low-altitude run. And missing. If you speak Russian, the language in the video is colorful even by Russian standards. One person ends with, quote, That will make the Ukrainians happy. End quote. Gray Zone wrote, quote, the Su-34 is used as an IL-2 during the Second World War. The lack of controlled high-precision weapons, or rather the lack of them in sufficient quantities, has led to the fact that now the pilots have to risk their lives and aircraft even more. End quote. Quick sidebar to explain that one. The Aleutian IL-2 was a Russian ground attack aircraft first built in 1941 and retired in 1954. The author's point is that because the Su-34 has to use unguided bombs, it is no more effective at striking a target than an IL-2. But it's all going to plan. In geopolitical news, Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs Dmitry Kuleba invited the 30 United States House Congressional Progressive Caucus and Republican Congress members against continued support for Ukraine to tour Izum. A visibly frustrated Kuleba did not mince his words, accusing members of both political parties of supporting Russia, saying, quote, I'm inviting all the advocates of this point of view, regardless of their affiliation, to Ukraine. Let them come. We will take them to Izum. Let them go down into the grave from which the Ukrainians tortured by the Russians were exhumed. Let them stand there for two minutes. Then they will return to their capital and think about what position they should take. End quote. U.S. Congressperson Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, blasted a group of useful idiots that harassed her during a speech. On Twitter, she wrote, quote, I'm sorry, you all aren't anti-war protesters. You are dangerous propagandists who are literally making a mockery of the anti-war movement. I have never had the pleasure of responding to Russia's ridiculous internet disinformation in person before. Thank you for the opportunity. End quote. Shortly after her tweet was criticized, she followed up with, quote, I am amazed at the nerve that some people have to not be upset with the country literally waging war, but at the country defending itself and those helping them do that. I was even told by one of these people tonight, it's America that started the Russia war. Seriously, WTF? End quote. Newly elected British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is planning to visit Kyiv, according to Vadim Pristaiko, Ukraine's ambassador to the United Kingdom. A date has not been set and likely will not be shared for security reasons. In economic news, the ruble closed the week steady with an exchange rate of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices also closed the week out unchanged, with WTI holding at $88 a barrel and Brent at $96.
United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market dropped to $2.91 a gallon, or 77 cents a liter. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures dropped to 110 euros per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts. December 2022 contracts also fell to 141 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures also ended the week unchanged, holding steady at $8.30 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. And don't forget to check out David's Week in Review episode tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.